La cuartilla del poeta es Word. La pesadilla del poeta es Word. El paraíso del poeta es Word. El compromiso del poeta es Word. Word. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Cosmic strange. So here we are now for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. So now we're going to take everything that we've amassed regarding the nature of the, uh, the oath that was sworn on the head of John Barley. Mm. It occurred to me, Sparrow. What do you Relative mean? Relative to, like, John Barleycorn. Um, yeah, that song. It's an old uh, English folk song. Yeah, relative to your computer that keeps uh, misspelling or, you know, there's uh, oath and oat. Oh, oat, yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah, my, my computer keeps saying oats instead of oaths. But it never says oaf, O-A-F, because I think that word's kind of archaic now then. The computer knows words that are kind of corporate. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and these three men made a solemn vow uh, um, that John Barleycorn must die, um, I think is the is the phrase. And, uh, you know, so here we are, three men uh, going to take everything we have into John Ashbury's The Tennis Court Oath. Right. Yeah, yeah, we are. And I'd be happy to provide uh, a little background on the composition of the book. Oh, okay, great. I mean, nothing too elaborate, but... Um, of the it, book in which the poem, The Tennis Court yes. Oath, appears. The eponymous. And which we, and which we have book. John Ashbery uh, reading uh, from 1964. So we oh. can play that. Let me just mention first that this was, uh, the tennis court oath appeared, uh, in the second book, uh, titled The Tennis Court Oath, which was published in the year 1962. And John Ashbury wrote it while he was in, um, in Paris. And he was in Paris, um, on a Fulbright scholarship. He actually, um, was there twice. He was there from, um, the mid fifties to 1957. And I believe that's when his first book came out. He returned to the United States for that, Some Trees, when it was selected by Auden for the Yale Younger Poets series. And then he returned to France um, in 1958, and he stayed there um, until 1965. And in interviews, uh, oh, he was uh, he was purportedly researching Raymond Rousseau. He was going to write this uh, book. On Raymond Rousseau, that was the Fulbright uh, scholarship. And who is Raymond Rousseau? Raymond Rousseau was a French writer influenced by the uh, the Surrealist tradition. I don't know um, all that much about his work, 
He's a, uh, a novelist, is that right? A novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ashbury, while he was there, um, reported that he, he uh, experienced a great deal of uh, isolation. Oh, yeah. Um, he did um, find a lover. He maintained a very close friendship with this guy, Pierre Mortaroy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember him. Uh, I think I saw mm-hmm. him somewhere once. Yeah, I mean, he maybe died in the late 19. 19- 90s, uh, Ashbery uh, translated a volume of his poetry entitled, I believe, The Landscape is Behind the Door, that came out maybe at some point in the 1990s. Hmm. Um, but it was during this period of isolation in France, during the second stint from 1958 to 1965, that Ashbery claimed that he was in a, a very creative place hmm. and um, wrote these uh, pretty experimental perhaps even the most experimental poems of his uh, his career. And I did find this uh, interview from 1997 that appeared in Jacket magazine. The Australian poet John Tranter was interviewing Ashbury. And I just want to read one very brief exchange, and then maybe we can hear the poem, The Tennis Court Oath, uh, from 1964. John Tranter, who started Jacket. Yes, who started Jacket. Australian, yeah. Yep. And he asked Ashbury, I was wondering, um, this is again, John, I'm Tranter. I was wondering if the fact that you were away from America and away from the magazines and reviews and friends and so on, whether that may have had something to do with the fact that you thought you could go right out on a limb. And Ashbury responded, yes, I I think it did. My idea probably was, well, if nobody's listening, then why not go ahead and talk to myself? And see what I get out of it. Hmm. I have more to say about that exchange, but maybe we should hear the uh, the poem. What do you Fine think? Fine with me. Sounds good. The first poem is called The Tennis Court Oath. What had you been thinking about? The face studiously bloodied, heaven-blotted region. I go on loving you like water, but there is a terrible breath in the way all of this. You were not elected president, yet won the race, all the way through fog and drizzle. When you read it was sincere, the coasts stammered with unintentional villages, the horse strains, fatigued I guess, the calls I worry. The water beetle head, why of course, reflecting all, then you redid, you were breathing, I thought going down a mail list of the kettle, you jabbered as easily in the yard, you came through, but are incomparable, the lovely tent, mystery you don't want, surrounded the real, you dance. In the spring there was clouds. The mulatris approached in the hall, the lettering easily visible along the edge of the times. In a moment the bell would ring out, but there was time for the carnation laugh. Here are a couple of other. To one in yon house. The doctor and Philip had come over the road, turning it toward the corner of the wall, his hat on, reading it carelessly as if to tell you your fears were justified. The blood shifted, you know those walls, wind off the earth, it made him shrink. Undeniably, an oboe, now the young were there, was candy to decide the sharp edge of the garment. Like a particular cry, not intervening, called the dog, he's coming, he's coming, with an emotion felt it sink into peace. There was no turning back, but the end was in sight. He chose this moment to ask her in detail about her family and the others, the person, pleaded, have more of these, not stripes on the tunic or the porch chairs, will teach you about men, what it means to be one in a million pink stripe. 
and now you could go away. The three approach the doghouse, the reef. Your daughters dream of my son, understand prejudice, darkness in the hole, the patient finished. They could all go home now, the hole was dark. Gladak's blowing across his face, glad he brought you. Hmm. Wow. There you go. That was from August 23rd, 1964. That was at the Washington Square Art Gallery in New York. Um, Bill Berkson gave the introduction to that reading. And the tennis court oath, I think that came out in 62, right? Didn't you say, Andrew? 1962. Yeah. So it's the 50th anniversary of the book. Hmm. Yeah. On the on the Poetry Society of America website or one of these websites, it gives the um, copyright is 1957. It gives two copyrights. One is 57 and the other is maybe 62. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, it's the poem was For published the poem in or the book. Yeah, maybe the poem is older than yeah. the book. Oh. So I think we really should think about the poem um, itself. And Can even I say just something? the title, which is, you know, what both of them are. Mm. You know, and I think the title is worth our contemplation, if I may suggest. Okay. You know, what I, I just wanted to say one thing, that he, uh, I was following the poem on my page, and he changed a couple of words in the reading. I guess I, should, I feel like now is the moment to say that. Since Can we come back to it? Um, oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, you want to talk about... Um... The historical reference, or do you want to talk about the choice? Yeah, I, I think that just just the choice, just the nature of the title, the tennis court of, you know, yeah, which I think is an interesting one. You know, it references a political event, but it's a it's a poetic event. He turns a political event into a poetic one. It's just the first thing I would say. Also, it seems like the title is kind of. A prominent, noticeable, because it doesn't have any apparent relationship to the poem. If you didn't know that this poem was entitled The Tennis Court Oath, you would never guess that. So, yeah. So it's yeah. a striking choice of a title. Right, right. I mean, I guess Ashbury and his circle, uh, Frank O'Hara, Kenneth Cope, they felt the allure of uh, France and uh, French poetry, which was mm-hmm. kind of, an, has been described by David Lehman as an aesthetic succession from uh, from the world of Anglo-American poetry as a radical act of uh, I, mean, I don't know how radical it was but it, 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 it was a uh, subversive on some level it was um, something um, that wasn't being done in American university circles and academic poetry and mm-hmm. where Anglo-American poetry at this time historically uh, was taken seriously. I guess French poetry, lesser. Well, it's also true, you know, that there is no New York school if it wasn't for Apollinaire. And Mm. the generations of poets fore and aft from, you know, that, that event, including Roussel and, um, and particularly for Ashbery, Reverdy, definitely, and a whole host of people, but that, scene and also a sociability around making art and around making poetry and the interpermeability of those two streams of events, that was the New York school. And the influences of uh, of French poetry into 
you know, like you said, Andrew uh, O'Hara and Ashbury. Skyler. And Coke and Skyler and a kind of intelligentsia, et cetera, you know, which was all like really terrific. And although these guys um, were like. Wouldn't be possible. Right. And although they were establishment in that they went, you know, they went to, many of them went to Harvard, I, I think they did, just like the third estate was locked out of the um, mm-hmm. National Assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, according to some, you know, they, they felt locked out of the poetry establishment because of the experimental nature of their, their writing. Mm-hmm. That, and, and, and it's interesting, actually, uh, I don't think, I'm not suggesting Ashbury is conscious of this, but I don't think of it. Any of those folks were, were born into uh, established society. I mean, they, they all came from uh, middle class households. John Ashbury came from upstate New York. So did James Schuyler, Kenneth Coe, Frank O'Hara, you know, a middle class family. Sort of or were the third estate of sorts. Even lower middle class. Or lower working middle class. class, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Definitely. Um, in terms of a sort of coterie, I guess. And... Uh, but also, I mean, the tennis court oath is very ironic. Mm. Um, you know, the idea of, of an oath in conjunction with this suburban entity, you know, that um, rectangle, that paved rectangle and that structure, uh, which is just like a suburban um, cliche, I think, you know, in conjunction with oath, you know, the way in which that sport has evolved you know in terms of its meaning is also interesting yeah there's a lot of i think sort of jokes i was noticing today that court is a double pun you have a law court and you have two lovers courting and there might be more meanings too so it's it's hard not to see um those meanings kind of floating around the title and then, well, I think maybe Andrew should discuss the, like, literal historical event of the tennis court oath. But I do want to say that you could say, in a way, the real tennis court oath in the French Revolution sort of turned the uh, uh, sports court into a law court. Hmm. Well, the, the historical <laughs> reference refers to uh, events in um, 1789, when uh, really that... Uh, Launched in many respects the French Revolution when, when members of the uh, French Third Estate, the Third Estate, uh, I think it comprised uh, maybe about 25 million people, uh, the bourgeoisie, the, the peasants, uh, everyone else in France. Unlike you know, I had mentioned the uh, class uh, just signifier earlier, socioeconomic socioeconomic class. Um, Unlike the first and second estates, the third estate were compelled to pay taxes. What are the first and second estate? Do you know? The first estate was the um, the clergy, which was actually um, yeah the, the Catholic clergy. And they owned a lot of the land, a good deal of the land in France, if my memory serves correct. Um, and they didn't pay any taxes on that land. Uh, the second estate would be um, comprised of the uh, the nobles and. Um, it included the um, the wives and the children of the nobles. Um, so the third estate, you know, being um, the farmers, peasantry, the working poor, the um, commoners, a, the commoners, they had yeah. um, a considerable amount of resentment 
toward the first and second estates for the upper classes. I would jump in and reference that we went over um, with some care, although a little lightly, um, material around this when we did Lafayette. Oh, yeah. When we did Lafayette coming out of Lafayette Square, coming yeah, out I of, um, you know, Agent Orange crossing over um, to Lafayette, you know, crossing Lafayette Park mm-hmm. when he... Um, you know, did that to hold play where he grabbed a hold of a Bible with a, with a bunch of generals standing around him. And, yeah. You know, just a reference for people. Like he did yeah. two Lafayettes, two or three. Who knows? They're infinite. Yes. <laughs> yes, so many. So on the morning of um, June the 20th, which is sneaking up on us, uh, hmm. the anniversary, 1789, um, deputies of the Third Estate you know, went to the National Assembly at Versailles. And they were shocked to discover that the uh, the chamber door was locked and guarded by soldiers. So there was this immediate fear of the worst, that there was going to be um, some sort of annihilation, a royal attack. They were going to be taken out by, that was a setup by King Louis XVI. So they decided to congregate, recongregate in this um, nearby indoor tennis court, which is located at... Um, Versailles. Uh-huh. Well, it's, it's in the city of Versailles. It's not It's not actually in the palace. It's near the palace. Hmm. And uh, I think the majority of the, um, the Third Estate, maybe that was 550, 570 or so members of the Third Estate took this collective oath. Uh, and I do have the language here. The, the oath was, this is language from the actual oath, not to separate and to reassemble wherever circumstances require until the constitution of the kingdoms, be the new constitution, is established. Hmm. And there was only uh, one person who did not join in the oath. Hmm. Um, that he just—I guess he was a royalist, uh, Joseph Martin Dosh, hmm. I don't know how to pronounce it—who would only execute decisions that were made by the uh, made by the king, Louis the uh, Sixteenth. I have a suspicion he is not long for this world after uh, <laughs> not signing the uh, the tennis court oath. Yeah, so that's that's some of the historical background. Is that is that helpful at all? Somewhat it's interesting. interesting to me. And is there a fourth and fifth estate, or is that later that they? I believe that's later. Do you know Sam? I don't offhand, but I think that Lafayette was there. Oh, and I think Lafayette okay. made the oath. It was some crucial part of his biography. Hmm. So I always imagined that the, the, what would become the New York School, that those guys were, you know, entered into their own tennis court oath to um, create a, a new vision through experimentation. And yeah. my um, theory about, and then I know we want to talk about the poem. My theory about has the that poem, come up? Has that come up extra textually, Andrew? Only in my imagination. In other imagination. words, uh, only in your imagination. Okay. I've never heard that before. But in other words, like Ashbury didn't at some point say, oh, yeah, we used to talk about this tennis court oath that we took together. No, but, but there was he, no, yeah. No, okay. but he has discussed, um, you know, you know, he lived with um, O'Hara for a period and um, uh, was very close proximity to Kenneth Koch. They were living in New York after meeting at Harvard. And I think there definitely was some sort of pact, a social relationship, and, you know, an encouragement. 
that's David Lehman's book, The Last Avant-Garde. Yeah. I mean, my instinct is that Ashbury chose the title because of its irony. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. And yeah, that I it's don't... a work of art. Um, you yeah, know, it's I... like how you would title a painting. Um, that's, that's my sense. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I... and that he was unaware of its kind of implicit irony of the suburbanness of the tennis court. I think um, you're probably right. But also aware of other resonances, maybe for sure. And, you know, he was a, you know, um, really obsessed with French culture. He did mention that when he was a young boy, he ran down French fairy tales, French histories. And I know when he was growing up and he was a teenager, he would um, write about maybe his, um, some of his libidinal feelings in French to, to keep them in code. He had always um, fantasized, romanticized about France and learned as much as possible after reading an article, I believe, in Life magazine when maybe he was um, early in high school, uh, that he, he always wanted to uh, go to France. So he, he definitely knew about the, uh, I'm assuming, the history of the French Revolution and the tennis court oath. I think all of it's present, the irony, the historical nod as well. You know, to, to borrow from that Nigerian Ibu proverb, next to one thing always stands another. <laughs> I think Ashbury's poetry very much uh, exudes that sort of duality. Yeah, I mean, maybe because I'm a Libra, I see the the poem and the title as both revolutionary in a literal and figurative sense, and also I agree with Sam that it is it has all sorts of connotations of of humor. Definitely. And and uh, I don't know if I've said this in our podcast, but. I saw Ashbury read a couple of times, and to me, he was super funny as a reader, yeah. like kind of a stand-up comedian. I talk about that in my essay that I wrote for this uh, conference I'm supposed to be in. Uh, that that is that sounds excellent. I do think we should talk about that more. But the, you know, but but I do think that that's an excellent entrance, Andrew, into actually looking at the text itself. Sure. But before we do that, I just want to do one back ants at oath and that is that for me the tennis court oath um allows for a whole range of um you know that you can put anything in front of oath and it becomes you know and it, it can become comical or farcical but also that you know you can put anything in front of oath and it and it can have you know a certain utility and kind of sound good yeah or sound solemn or important and historical in this case right ironic or you know act, yeah it's a it's, i just think it's an interesting structure and i think tennis court kind of opens that opens up that play for me yeah i mean at some point i would like to discuss this uh, article that i just stumbled upon the other day in the london review of books october 8 2020 that i'm carrying around reading and um it's a review of this book called A People's History of Tennis by David Barry. And it gives, you know, kind of the entire history of tennis, including the tennis court oath, and gives some of the sense of uh, the various meanings of tennis. If we have time, I'd like to discuss it at some point. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, let's leave both those options open. Can I say one thing before we segue into the poem? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I just want to share my theory of this poem and the book. I you know, one of the many things that's happening in addition to the play and the in the humor and the you know, within the realm of the experiment. I think um 
that the, the whole work is a person in, um, in a foreign country experiencing that isolation that I mentioned earlier, reconfiguring hmm. consciousness and identity. And, and the way you can kind of sort of do um, when you're no longer in your native land. And mm. I just wanted to nod to another text that was written, not by John Ashbery, but, but an American writer in Paris, maybe 14 years earlier. And there's this short paragraph that I just have to read. I think it's a great preface. And mm. this comes from an, the essay, The Discovery of What It Means to Be an American by James Baldwin. And Baldwin was in Paris in 1948, and he wrote the following. And I, I remember this paragraph when I was thinking about um, Ashbery in Paris, and I just want to read it. The American writer in Europe is released, first of all, from the necessity of apologizing for himself. It is not until he is released from the habit of flexing his muscles and proving that he is just a regular guy that he realizes how crippling this habit has been. It is not necessary for him there to pretend to be something he is not, for the artist does not encounter in Europe the same suspicion he encounters here. Whatever the Europeans may actually think of artists, they have killed enough of them off by now to know that they are as real, as persistent as rain, snow, taxes, or businessmen. And I just remembered that the quotation from the jacket that I read at the beginning of the podcast where Ashbury did talk about, um, you know, being in France and trying to talk to himself to see what he got out of it just reminded me of that paragraph, James mm, Baldwin. That's great. Great find. It reminds me of this experience I had when I was staying in this farmhouse in outside of Rennes in the, uh, in, uh, what do you call it? Brittany in Britannia in, in France. And I had this idea I was going to write some kind of funny article and send it to the New Yorker, and they were going to publish it, and I was going to get rich. And I asked uh, the woman, that I was staying with a, a mother and a daughter. The daughter was maybe seven. The mother was, you know, in her 30s. And uh, I said, you know, what do you have? I remembered suddenly the word for typewriter. I said, avez-vous une machine à écrire? A machine for writing. Do you have a typewriter? And I said, je suis écrivain, you know, I'm a writer. And she looked at me <laughs> the way if you would say, like, I'm a saint or like, I am, uh, you know, the vice president or something, you know, like, like as if I had this incredible dignity and importance. Just, and she knew that I was the itinerant loser. Didn't matter. It was that being a writer was, was a noble, uh, just an immediate response from her. And she, got out the typewriter, like offered it to me the way you offer, you know, to a king, a bowl of pomegranate mm. juice. <laughs> I got some of that sense at Shakespeare and Company. Uh -huh. um, the owner there, yeah, took a big interest and, you know, invited me to stay. And, yeah, and, and um, very much um, that is an ethos of Paris. But I think that Baldwin quote is also interesting from its because it's also from the perspective of a gay American. Yeah, mm -hmm. black gay. American. And you know, in Paris, the social mores are just much more permissive, uh, more permissive in that area for sure. Yeah, I mm -hmm. believe it even in the way, late fifties. If uh, the work of Andre Gide is any indication, aye. Mm -hmm. aye. 
Yeah. Although I think he so I think that that is an aspect of that, you know, a a kind of an alienation, perhaps that you get released from, as Baldwin says. And I see I see a gay undercurrent in this poem. I mean, we'll get to it later, but I I think uh, that in a way this poem has elements of of Asbury coming out. Well, there, you know, there's well, the someone one... who wrote an entire review of this book claiming that it was all largely encoded homoerotic poetry. That if you look, you know, I think it's, it's silly. I mean, it's reductive theory, but um, there may be some of that there too. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I mean, as far as I understand, it's a work of collage. Mm-hmm. Most yeah. of the tennis court oath is, is works of collage. Yes. So I think it's interesting to start pulling. It's a work of uh, what's called parataxis, mm. right? Which is what? Um, it's arranging the side, you know, and that's juxtaposed with hypotaxis, which means arranging below. That is, one thing follows the next. Um, but I think uh, the way in which you talked about it, Andrew, where you said one thing is next to another. The Igbo proverb. Yeah, oh, the Igbo, Igbo proverb. Um, proverb is next to one thing, always stands another. Mm. Exactly. And that's the operation that I see Ashbury is enacting here. I mean, this is coincident in a time in which Cage is talking about ways of eliminating himself. And Mm. also, you know, this is a French technique. Um, You know, uh, and Burroughs, you know, was just experimenting with that recently, Mm. you know, Mm. when this was written. In Tangier. Yeah. I mean, he, the beats were around in there, right? In Tangier, maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, that's how I kind of get it, except I think there's a point at which he gets inside it. There's a, there begins to be a, um, it starts getting kind of, I feel like he puts his thumb on the scale a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's my take. At a certain point, but we could get there. I don't know. What do you and mean I, by he puts his thumb on the scale? I say, I, I, I think that, I, you know, you can feel the arising or the fissure out of which Ashbery's voice in its more classic, um, register is coming out. Um, that's what I think. That he's not, it's not, I think, Andrew, what he's saying, what what Sam is saying, it's not just purely random, putting his thumb yeah. on the scale, he's influencing the uh, random, uh, you know, technique. He's kind right. of pushing it a little bit. Like when you cheat, when you're doing the Ouija board, yeah. right. and you kind of move it right. towards letter I R. I see, I see. I like think you have nice runs of luck, you know, and then, you know, at a certain point, you might sometimes nudge the board. We've all been there. And I think uh, I read somewhere that Cage did it. Like Cage would throw the dice. He'd be about to put in a C sharp, whatever the dice told him. And he'd like, eh, I think I'll make it a D. Once in a while, he would he would use his own volition 
that was part of the technique that he was in a dialogue with chance. He wasn't purely the slave of chance. And, and I think this poem, you know, is like that. I don't see it as purely, uh, I don't see it as arbitrary at all. I think it's using some kind of technique of juxtaposing, you know, uh, different phrases that don't go together grammatically, but it's not at all, uh, it doesn't strike me as arbitrary. You know what, I think, I mean, I'm just making this up, and I, I, this might be outlandish, but when I read this poem, I get the sense of someone who is reading and alone in a room and then mm. checking out things that are happening in the room mm. and language fragments from um, a, like a crime novel or a newspaper, a romance, are juxtaposed with like snippets from the... Uh, from the phenomenological world, you know, from the, from the room. Like this, this, uh, there's some, oh, there's that's interesting. I'm looking so at you're this, saying uh, that you believe there's a stream of working with text, of paratactical um, movement with text in some sort of pattern, but you believe that there's certain areas in which he's describing the circumstances in which that's occurring? Yeah, the water beetle head, for example. Yeah, it's or I was going to say th- this this whole verse, the mulatress approached in the hall, the lettering easily visible along the edge of the times. In a moment, the bell would ring, but there was time. So that whole section could all be absolutely literal. I mean, I want to get at some point to the problematic word mulatress, that is a mulatto female. But mm-hmm. I think maybe there was he's in the room. Uh, and he, there's a woman, maybe a, a servant of some sort, who's coming in the hall. And then on the corner, he's got the, the Times of London lying on a chair, and he can see the, the lettering easily visible along the edge of it. In a moment, the bell would ring because it's about to be four o'clock, and the church bell is going to ring across the street. Um, but there was time. There's a little time, you know, uh, to do things. I mean, that could all be entirely literal. And then there are also um, thoughts that are going on. I, I go on loving you like water, but there is a terrible breath in the way. Hmm. Um, I just think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a parataxis. It's a juxtaposition of text, thought association, and empirical observation. Um, those are the three centers that I feel. But the, I'm not this. this that's just my like reader response in the moment, but something something about that reading is uh, calling to me, radiating energy. Right. Now. I mean, I'm inclined more to see it as a love poem. That just because that's the fourth line, I go on loving you like water, which is a pretty romantic line. So, that, right. so you know, so like, what had you been thinking about? That's the first line which actually is the kind of thing you say to your lover, particularly like your new lover. You don't know that well. And, you know, you're both maybe just had sex and you're both kind of in a absorbed state. And then you turn to, to your lover and say, well, what are you thinking about? And the last and, line too, Sparrow. The mm, last right. line, li- lilac blowing across his face, glad he brought you. A and, very romantic uh, image. And I have to say, blowing across his face just to go back to your friend the uh and then the line before now the hole was dark um you know uh 
if you want to give it a, a sexual and gay reading, why not? You know. Yeah, I think that's a super duper frank um, homosexual like send off. You know, you know, mm. with the lilacs also of uh, Lincoln uh, when lilacs oh, left, yeah. the barnyard bloomed. So I mean, that's I, I mean, I'm I'm warming to you know your thoughts. I just want to say that's one thing I'd like to say. Yeah, I mean, I just think a lot of these New York school poems. Well, come to think of it. What is the personism manifesto by Frank O'Hara? It is that every poem is written to the person you love the most. So I think there's a lot of uh, encoded love poetry in uh, the New York school. And uh, the idea is you don't want to be a fool. You don't want to act like an idiot and admit that you're writing a love poem. So you hide it among all this underbrush. But that's basically, that's the inner core of it, I think. The other is the lover. Mm. Robin Blaze said Robin Blazer. Hmm. Is that a line from something? Uh, Yeah, that's what Robin Blazer said. He said, the other is the lover. Mm -hmm. You know, because one is writing, and it's a direct reference um, that Ashbery makes, you're always writing for, like, in quotes, other, like some other, mm-hmm. right? For the incarnation laughed here are a couple of other. And the other, you know, there's an element you could you could say there's a spiritual element to any love poem, too. Like, in a sense, love poems are kind of love poems to God, too. I mean, there's there's a, there's a way of looking at that. Which is a tradition, you know, come to think of it in, uh, in all mystic poetry and Rumi and, and a little bit in the troubadours where is kind of confusing whether they're really talking about the, the mother of God or some gorgeous woman that they're just met. They're, they're like the Vita Nuova of Dante. Dante has that problem in the extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're saying that Ashbur, you're, so you're leaning into this argument that, I mean, one is in the realm of beauty in that which is coincident with the poetic one. And there is love there, but I don't think that Ashbury's disposition was necessarily directed in like a frank erotic sort of symbology to another man through his poetry. I think there are elements of that, you know, and I think there, but I don't think that that was his um, overweening concern. That would be more or less my take. I don't know. No, that, that's my that's my take as well. But I do I do think there's a, a fair amount of uh, eroticism. In this uh, this collection, he's a young and lusty man. You know, Ashbury. How old is yeah. he? He's thirty. He's in his early thirties. Yeah, I must uh, say when when we heard 30 him, thirty or so. You know, he's a, he's uh, just a young. Yeah. When we heard him read, I didn't recognize his voice. You know, I heard him read a few times, and spoke to him a couple times, and he always had a very low, deep old man's voice, and. His voice on that recording is so young. He's like a different person than the person I met. Hmm. But I just noticed uh, looking for erotic uh, meanings. 
there's the particular there's the line like a particular cry not intervening called the dog he's coming he's coming <laughs> which i mean i i think that i mean i i'm still going to hold to my theory that deep down it's a love poem and that there's a lot of erotic imagery but i don't mean to say that that's all it is i think it's it, you know it's it's like uh, it's not one simple thing it, it is why not on a some level i think it's it is about the tennis court over yeah no right on yeah no i'm with you i mean I believe that's true, relatively speaking, in this poem. But I do, you know, I think this erotic um, juice that you're squeezing out, I like <laughs> the taste of that. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, you I'm just talking about Ashbury as an artist. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, what's interesting, you know, Ashbury's... Um, superpower, which I think we've noticed, you know, because we did one other uh, long poem of his. Uh, uh, Self-portrait. Self yeah. Oh, did we? <laughs> you know, uh, one of the, his superpowers is his capacity to pull the rug away, to mm -hmm. develop this verbal topography that you inhabit, and then at a, at a certain, he just pulls it all away. And in that disappearance is this weird kind of meaning. But he's using enchantment. Um, he's using what isn't there as central to the meaning production. Mm -hmm, good right? point. Yeah. Like what and is did you notice? there. And, and so what happens is that you, you weave a rug instead around what isn't there. Like it's a backwards. There's a parataxis here, mm -hmm. um, I believe, in terms of his method. You know, just this little quasar, you know, this little flicker, I feel. And I think that's what I meant when I said that that I experienced him as a stand-up comedian when I would hear him read, because he would, he would be going in one direction, you know, the shrubbery is blank with reddish uh, Mohammedan angels, you know, like, and, and like that, those little turns would, well, you know, because I see everything... Everything strikes me as funny. Those little twists would strike me uh, as funny. And I think they were intended in part to be funny. And did you notice when he reads the, the poem, he does not read the enjambment. He doesn't read it at all, uh, according to the line breaks. Yeah, I was sort of watching that a little bit. He's very casual about it. Um, yeah, totally. Why not? And maybe now is my time to point out the two insertions he made yeah. in his uh, reading. He said, there's the line, in a moment, I, a line I read just before, in a moment the bell would ring, but there was time. He wrote, he, he read, in a moment the bell would ring out, but there was time. And he, and there's a line, so that's like, it's the, uh, the, line, the, the verse that begins the mulatris, third line, in a moment the bell would ring, but there was time. In a moment, the bell would ring out, but there was time. Ring out. So he inserted the word out. He inserted the word out. Yeah. Uh huh. And then, and then, almost was like it's maybe like the sixth, the uh, sixth line ahead. from I'm the sorry. end. He says, "And now could go away." The three approached the doghouse, and he wrote, "And now," and he read, "And now you could go away." The three approached the doghouse. He added, "You." 
So in both cases, he made the 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 lines more <laughs> colloquial and literal. What is, I don't know what it means. But, and and also, I think like a great reader never corrects himself, realizes or herself, you know, realizes uh, he made a mistake and just keeps going. Like let that right stand, on. you know. Yeah, right. it's like Emerson on at the lectern. You know that story. It's apocryphal. Well, he's at the lectern. You know, he made all his money doing lectures. And so Mm -hmm. he was out someplace, like in Indianapolis, and was giving his lecture up at the lectern. And, you know, something happened, you know, bobbled something. And his papers flew onto the stage. Mm. And they weren't numbered. (laughs) And so the papers were spread all around and he, you know, got got uh, up from the, le- you know, and went over and collected them all, just higgledy piggledy, and started to read. Wow! And the audience went bananas, like the whole thing cohered. He was able to just reconstitute it um, from this kind of scattered pattern, and was still able to deliver the message of, you know, the infinitude of the thinking person. And, and so he read them out of order. Out of order, yeah. Wow. He's like Ashbery. He's like the, I don't know if I ever told you this, but like, you know, I used to know this guy, Eugene Ritchie, who was uh, Ashbery's oh. assistant. Did I tell you the story? That, and he said, here's how Ashbery writes his poems. He has these lines. He thinks of them. He, he types them out on a typewriter. He cuts them up, cuts them out, puts them in a bowl, and then he pulls the lines out of the bowl one by one. <laughs> This is just like Bob Dylan. Yeah, Dylan does the same exact thing. Did he really? Yeah. <laughs> I thought we established that, you know, some time ago. And I think Dylan also would like pick up a magazine and whatever he saw in the magazine he'd put in the song. And John Ashbury did that too. What, with magazines? Yeah. He said in when I took his class, he said, Oh, don't think that I like come up with everything. It's quite common for me to grab a line out of a magazine. He meant like a normal magazine, not a uh, not a poetry magazine. Is that any, your any, anything? Yeah. Yeah, he said it could be poetry, it could be a newspaper, it could be a novel. That oh, he, he said fre- that. he frequently did that to, if he if he you know hit a, hit a block. Yeah, that's what Ted Berrigan said too. Yeah. That when you're stuck, just take a book down and and choose a line and put it in. Yeah. The one thing that I would say that I would add to what I had said before is that that thing that Ashbury reveals when he pulls everything away um, is uh, is what I would call the void at the heart of the image. Mm. I yeah. like that. The void at the heart of the image. Mm. Write that down. Yeah, you mean because there is a way, like uh, like Ted Berrigan hated metaphors and. And maybe similes, and he said, like every time he read uh, in a poem something like, you know, uh, her face was like a fire. He thinks, no, it wasn't, you know. And and there's a way that Ashbury stops just short of uh, like of of making it into a real metaphor. Like he says, the doctor and Philip had come over the road, and then you know. Like a normal poet would say, they had come over the road, uh, panting like a uh, horse. Zebra. Yeah, and 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 then you know he just stops it before he can like make a fool of himself. You know, just the doctor and Philip had come over the road. New line. 
turning in toward the corner of the wall, his hat on. And it's just like his hat on his head, like a lovely cauliflower. You know, he just stops before he gets to the metaphor. Like, I think that's maybe what you mean about the void at the heart of the image, that he he gives you the void instead of the image. Kind of. That's how I... Right. Yeah. And you're, and you're forced to traverse it. Yeah. To like move past. And, and you kind of hear all those metaphors because they're not there, but they don't entangle you and, and trip you up. Like, I mean, at least they do to me when I read normal poetry that's full of like these ridiculous comparisons. Yeah. You feel them, but you don't have to quite encounter them face to face. I really like this poem more and more. Yeah, it is kind of a beautiful poem. I love that line, you were not elected president, yet won the race. I thought of you, Sparrow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a good you point. ran for president. Many times. Eight times. <laughs> and I was never elected. And people say to me, oh, Sparrow, you're the real president. Sparrow, I voted for you. You know, people say things almost like you were not elected president, yet won the race. And also, oh. it, it predicts a lot of uh, modern uh, uh, presidential elections. Hillary... Uh, Al Gore, these are people that were not elected president but won the race. You know? Those are, yeah, those are, um, true statements. That's interesting. Yeah. I, want, I know we're talking about the poem and not the work, but I just, um, would feel remiss if I didn't point out that in this collection, the two longer poems are, are, uh, a poem entitled America. And at the very end, the, lo- the lengthy poem that concludes the book is entitled Europe. Huh. And I do think, um, at least on some level, next to one thing always stands another, this um, work does engage national identity, the American in Europe. Um, and it's, it, especially the poem Europe, uh, this is not original to my reading, it's just something Kenneth Koch writes in his book, uh, Making Your Own Days, on the topic of teaching uh, modern poetry. Europe is about, like... Uh, all these fragments, these sensory fragments, thought jags, associations, particular to um, to France and maybe to a degree traveling in Europe more generally, that are are numbered. The poem has it has huh. 111 sections, hmm. short mm-hmm. sections, and you know he's piecing together this collage of the American in Europe trying to make sense of the uh, the experience, you know, moving from mm. thing to thing, processing stimuli, collecting uh, fragments of conversation, jotting them down. Yeah, I th- I'd be interested in um, pursuing that sort of, um, yeah. uh, looking at that, um, looking at those two poems, and we can juxtapose them. I'm not sure that I'm just upfront sure there's a correspondence and that there's necessarily a analysis of ways of political or cultural, you know, that they're that they're thematically weighted against each other and stuff like that. But that's a pretty obvious. I would guess we should really find out. Maybe we should do a session. Yeah, at some point it, it just occurred to me. Yeah. I mean, you could argue what comes to my mind is it's very American to number things, to try to make everything rational, to turn everything into a a manual. That's what I think of Americans. This is what I think about my in my meditation group. When I was in Calcutta, 
and the different uh, nationalities would come to, you know, usually in groups to see my guru, you kind of get a sense of like the national temperament. And I always think that that's the thing about Americans. They want to read the manual and do it right. And they want to break it down into easy steps. How do you fix your car? How do you put the paper in the printer? You know, like numbers, numbers, numbers. And the Europeans are like, what are numbers? We don't need numbers. You know, everything is simultaneous. Sparrow, can you read your we've, essay? Your short oh, essays? oh, yeah, I can. Is that all right? I did want to say we've talked about the ongoing war between words and numbers, right? I don't remember. Yes. <laughs> I have no I, I just want to say that um, in terms of the history of the uh, this work, that it was received very poorly. <laughs> it it was just uh, you know decimated by the those who wrote reviews. As well, that's interesting, and uh, that gave John it made John Ashbery think. Uh, it gave him some difficulty getting the the next work, um, which was uh, Rivers and Mountains. And was that a hit? The next one. I think it was well received, but not as well received as the subsequent work, which was uh, Three Palms, the, the three oh, long wow. prose poems, which many many think are, there are some who think that that was his, his great work. Hmm. Well, you guys know that the language school emerges in, in, in some measure through the kind of paratactical experimentation, um, you know, manifest in people like John Ashbery significantly. Um, and, you know, the full man, you know, the, the further manifestation of this line of development is somebody like Clark Coolidge, say, mm -hmm. um, but also Lynn Higinian in her own way and, you know, an infinitude of others and certainly mm -hmm. Bernadette Mayer. Um, so, uh, you know, onward. So maybe now I'll read my speech. Yeah. Um, okay. So this, um, uh, doesn't seem to have a title. Is that the title? <laughs> no. That would be a good title. Maybe it should be a title. Maybe it should be the title. <laughs> you know, it contains lots of little jokes, my type of little jokes, not Ashbury's type of little jokes, but there's kind of an overlap. An oath is a promise. It may be a public promise or a secret one. One oath we all know is the Pledge of Allegiance, which we were forced to recite every day in school until we were old enough to attend graduate school, where every day we stood up, faced Paris, and recited an oath of allegiance to Baudelaire. The Pledge of Allegiance goes, I pledge ellipsis to the flank of the United States of Unbearable, and to the Republican for which it slams, one notion, under Gandhi, in the risible, with liberals and juice bars galore. Play ball. I happen to be in a group of rebel writers called the Unbearables. Risible means laughable, farcical, funny, and play ball is not really the ending of the pledge. It's the last two words of the national anthem, which is a whole different patriotic composition. The national anthem was written during the War of 1812, a war we lost, if you count the burning of Washington, D.C. as a loss. Also, we completely failed in our attempt to conquer Canada. The point of the national anthem is, we may have lost the war, but our flag is still waving on a flagpole. What were John Ashbery's politics? 
he supported the French Revolution, judging from the title of the book we are celebrating. Perhaps the references to blood in the poem are connected to the reign of terror, which was one outcome of that revolt. To quote from the poem, turning in toward the corner of the wall, his hat on, reading it carelessly as if to tell you your fears were justified. The blood shifted, you know, those walls. One reading of the poem is that the character in these lines, the one with a hat on, is being guillotined. By choosing this title for his book, is Ashbery suggesting that a poet takes an oath? A poet makes a promise to entertain herself, though it can be quite a melancholy entertainment. A poet also takes a vow to convey truths to the world, and John Ashbery's poems contain truths, though they are truths disguised as uncertainties. Actually, uncertainty itself is a kind of truth. Beyond any other poet I can think of, Ashbery was a musical composer. His pieces were more like sonatas than sonnets. And yet, when he read, I saw him read twice, once with James Schuyler. He sounded to me like a stand-up comedian. But really, he was the inverse of a comedian. A comedian uses words to create absurd situations. Ashbery used situations to create absurd words. Perhaps that was the oath Ashbery took, to let the words have the last laugh. Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility and the home of Station Hill Press. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network, and our cover art and theme music is by Havana poet Omar Perez the author of Cubanology. We're live on Pacifica Radio Network and available on any and all, including your favorite podcast venues. If you want to be in touch, including with any questions, insights, notices of gaffes or blunders, Suggestions for future sessions. We are very open to those, as we are to donations to our enterprise. Please write or call us at Station Hill Press or email bc at stationhill.org. And there we go. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.